One of the biggest challenges is when we're trying to solve a problem for the community that we don't listen to the community first. That's exactly what we're talking about today on the podcast. This is Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. It can be a very complicated process when we start talking about involving the users, the people we're trying to build a product for, the folks we're trying to help our stakeholders when we design a solution. And today's guest, Marnie Webb, the CEO of Caravan Studios, which is a a division of TechSoup, we'll hear more about both once we get into the interview. But Marnie's focused on a really amazing approach that involves the community while also balancing common elements used in Silicon Valley and tech startups of rapid prototyping, of using audience feedback, user feedback to, to build them into to the process and approach to solve like intractable problems. I'm excited to jump into this interview to hear how uh, Marnie and Caravan Studios approaches this and uh, hopefully give you some ideas on how you might go about building your next endeavor. I'm here with Marnie Webb, the CEO of Caravan Studios, a division of TechSoup. Marnie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So talk to me. What is a caravan and why does it have a studio? Or more specifically, <laughs> what are you up to and how did you get started with it? Sure. So as you said in the um, introduction, Caravan Studios is a division of TechSoup. We started Caravan Studios about four years ago now. Um, to very explicitly work with communities and develop new technology that help those communities address some of their most pressing issues. So we have a very participatory development methodology, something that um, people might recognize from design thinking strategies that are done by organizations like IDEO or Frog Design um, and described at places like Stanford's D-School. Um, and we use that strategy to work with communities to um, generate opportunities for technology intervention, design some of those technology interventions, work with a broader group of people to select which of the designs that they think will work best, and then actually come up with a strategy for building it and getting it into use. Cool. So just to, to peel back the onion a bit, you know, it sounds like you're a bit of a consulting agency. You're also a 501c3 and you're also a division of TechSoup. So, mm-hmm. you know, how, how do people, you know, how, how should people consider you? How do people interact with you? Sure. So we are, I would, I would take consulting agent, consulting agency off of that list. Okay. Um, TechSoup Done. is a 501c3. Thank you. TechSoup <laughs> is a 501c3 and we're a division of that. So we have TechSoup's 501c3. Um, and the way that we end up typically working with communities is, um, either some grant funded projects. So a grant maker comes in and says, Hey, we really want to work on these issues in this location. Are you guys up for it? And we say, yes, obviously that takes much longer and a lot of pieces of paper change hands to get there. But, um, and then, and then we go in and we bring together the right community members to start having the kind of conversations that, that I was talking about. 
And we also may get approached by some community members that say like, oh, wow, we saw some work that you did. We're really interested in finding out if you can do something like that here. And then so we'll we'll talk with that group about what what they mean by that and um, what that could look like. I said to take consulting off the list because I think if somebody says, hey, we've got this great idea. We know exactly what we need built. We just need a development company to do it. Um, we're not your organization. We think that we can point you to other much better people that will build off of um, specs whenever you've already done a lot of the community work. I think what we're bringing is a methodology to engage communities in the development and design. So if you're already past that step for whatever reason, it's probably better to engage directly with a development firm. It'll be much less expensive. It'll be much faster. Everybody will be happier. I think if people are like, we know we need something in this zip code, so we're working with the city of Indianapolis, for example, um, to develop some solutions to help Indianapolis residents be able to connect food resources. Um, they say, we know we need something like that, but we don't know exactly what we need. We need to figure out how to define what we need. Um, and that's the place where we, need, we then come in and work with the community to develop it. Did I answer your question? You did. That's actually very informative. Uh, and then help me with the, the division of TechSoup. Uh, Whole Whale's familiar. We've done sort of partner workshops with mm -hmm. them and webinars. But how do you talk about TechSoup? Sure. So TechSoup is a 30-year-old uh, nonprofit organization that provides technology products, resources, and knowledge to nonprofits around the world. TechSoup, we actually work in every country in which a U.S. organization can legally work. And the thing that TechSoup is most known for is helping organizations on the ground be able to access donated technology resources from companies like um, you know, Microsoft and Adobe and Symantec and many, many others. Um, we also provide a significant amount of educational material to help them optimize the use of that donated technology when they get it. And the things that we've done through working with these on-the-ground organizations over 30 years have led us to develop services like something called NGO Source that helps U.S.-based um, foundations be able to donate legally to NGOs outside of the U.S. through a very specific and mandated IRS overseas kind of process and um, and things like Caravan Studios. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I should actually put the asterisk in here. Of course, you were the co-CEO of TechSoup Global. Yes. Uh, yes. And, you know, we're talking yeah, about yeah. 600 million in donated tech. So, you know your stuff when we're talking yeah. about this topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've worked for TechSoup for 17 years. <laughs> so you, you, I have to do it. You drank the soup. You ate the soup. Uh, but I'm bum. Yes. There it is. I am now curious about some of the examples you are, you know, starting to talk about. Uh, before, you know, we jumped on, you were talking about the the safe shelter program mm -hmm. uh, that you put together. Can you say a bit more about that from sort of ideation tour to, to creation and, and your role in it? Sure. So the say, just to give a quick couple of sentences on what it is, and then I'll describe how we ended up here. The Safe Shelter Collaborative is a set of technology, actually, that allows organizations who provide services to domestic violence and human trafficking survivors to access urgently needed shelter quicker for a greater variety of survivors. So you know, I don't know how much you know about how the shelter system works now, but Somebody calls because they're in urgent need of help. You know, they're, they're likely terrified. 
They have a, they, they genu- genuinely are afraid for their life and physical safety. Um, they probably have a very small window of time in which they can get help time whenever the um, abuser or trafficker is not with them. Um, and they, they call a hotline or they call an organization or they go in and talk to somebody. It might be a case manager at a, um, at a hospital. It could be all kinds of different people. And, and they get to a point where they say, oh, this person needs to find shelter. Now, the next, the next problem is how do we find that shelter? There, there is a huge dearth of um, available beds in the United States. Um, according to statistics from the National Network to End Domestic Violence, on a single day in the United States, uh, over 6,000 requests for shelter were turned down because it simply wasn't available. Um, and, and it's available for a complex set of reasons. Sometimes it might be available to me, a woman, unavailable to you, a man, because there isn't a shelter that can serve men. Mm-hmm. It might be uh, I might have my children with me, and it's a shelter that could only serve a single adult. You know, so there's I might have language or health needs that make some shelter unavailable to me, even though they have an open open space, right? So it's more sophisticated than just where is there an empty slot? Can we put this human into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, a, and it's, you know, a huge problem. So, uh, and the safe shelter collaborative is, is built to address that. So it started because of our deep work with domestic violence organizations. And we started, and, and I will say that this is an interesting project to describe because not only is it work that we're proud of doing and, and feel super privileged to be able to do, but also it is part of what got us to start caravan studios and to think through what our development methodology is. So for years, as a part of TechSoup, we provided all kinds of support to domestic violence service organizations. Um, and um, like we provide support to many, many organizations. And in the course of that, we'd learned a lot about their needs, particularly this problem of somebody comes in, I don't have a shelter space, how do I find it? And we started in the place that most um, technologists start, which is like, well, that's simple. We'll create an inventory and you'll be able to look online and see where it is. And the other organizations will keep it up to date and you'll just send them to the place where it's an empty slot. And the people that we talked to kind of chuckled at us, patted us on the head and said, aren't you cute? You know, here are the million reasons that doesn't work. If uh, five of us see one available bed and we all send five people there, what happens to the other four? Two, that person may not be a match for that place for the kinds of reasons I described earlier. Um, Or three, and what is so often the case, I'm actually the only organization around me that provides services. I find empty beds by turning around. We found out about this practice that organizations have of placing people in hotel rooms and paying for a hotel room as a stopgap to get them out of a very dangerous situation and to find more stable, longer-term shelter for them. And so we started thinking and talking and we're like, you know what, we can make an app to help with this problem. We can make an app where you can trigger a request. It goes out to donors. They can make a donation in the requested amount. The donation goes to you. So it preserves the privacy of the donor and the privacy of the person being placed. The donor won't even know what hotel they're being placed at. They'll just know that a trusted organization is asking for help. Mm. And so we worked with a couple of organizations to build that. And, And in the course of doing it, we said, well, this is interesting because you, you know, how long did it take us to build uh, what was then called Safe Night? Well, it took us 14 years. 
Wow. <laughs> we had to get to know these organizations and we had to learn all this stuff about them. Technology had to get to a place where this idea that we'll send out a donation request over a mobile phone made sense. You know, when we first started talking to these organizations, that, that wouldn't have made any sense. Nobody was walking around with those in their pockets like that. And um, so, so one part was waiting for technology to catch up. The other part was having the conversations that let us jointly come up with this idea, right? And so we started saying with Caravan, well, what do we do to compress that time? Can we take that and turn it from 14 years into a year? Can we turn it from 14 years into six months? You know, can we turn it into three weeks? What kind of people, what were the ingredients that led us to get there? And so what kind of people do we have to bring into the room? What kind of conversations do we have to facilitate? And then because we place a value on the education and engagement of the community, we don't, we don't think, you know, kids don't get fed only because of an organization that provides a food and the kid who signs up for it. They get fed because community cares about it and supports that organization and supports providing food. Similarly, you know, the privacy of a domestic violence or human trafficking survivor needs to be preserved, but they get housed because a community decides it is no longer tolerable that there is an insufficient space for them. Yeah. And so how do we bring people together so that we build tools that are an expression of that community will? And they have that engagement and ownership and that sense that we're building this because we don't want this problem to exist anymore in our community because this is unacceptable. And so, so we, because that's the feeling we had, right? Like it was unacceptable to listen to these stories that we were hearing over and over, over 14 years. So we started saying, how do we condense this and how do we make it a reliable process that can, that can generate opportunities for good ideas, design some of those good ideas, and then work with the community to figure out which ones need to be built and, and, and then get them built and supported. Um, and I'm going to pause there for a second to say a lot of times when we talk about this, when we get to build, people start saying, oh, so you mean a hackathon? I think there are a lot of good in hackathons, actually, and I think there are a lot of bad. But we are not talking about a hackathon. We are talking about something that is built, that is reliable, that gets stress tested, that gets security tested, that has people behind it on a help desk answering questions when they come up. Um, so we mean built and supported and made available to the community yeah we could have a whole separate podcast on the uh the pros cons of, yeah. of hackathons and the and the many many trail of orphaned apps that they're that they're certainly out there in the I, I, ab- absolutely absolutely but i want to come back to this idea of, of the process right so 14 mm-hmm. years yeah let's let's go ahead and condense that uh, just as a, a quick curiosity, if you could go back and uh, give a, a quick pep talk to the Marnie starting that project, what advice would you immediately throw throw at? Oh, oh, the first thing that I would say is um, put your idea away and listen longer. Mm. Because I think what happened is that we did what many people do. We, we heard their problem and immediately thought of the tech environment that we know about and we slotted something in. Mm-hmm. right? A database inventory tool. Oh, we'll just keep a real time inventory of the available beds. And we didn't listen to the whole part of the problem. We, we didn't hear that, um, you know, uh, that these shelters are secure communal living environments and it has to be a, a, a fit. We didn't hear that the survivors, um, you know, one of the big thing that's been taken away from both human trafficking and domestic violence survivors is choice. 
You know, somebody else is dictating what they do. So, and so we're suggesting solving that problem by dictating where they go through an algorithm. That, 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 that doesn't make any sense once you think about it. But we didn't, we were so busy having our bright idea on how technology could fix it. We didn't hear the human beings. And I would say like, slow down, listen longer and have a way to organize that listening so that you can start to bring ideas in at the appropriate time. So it's interesting because I have two contrarian thoughts at the same time as you say that. Mm -hmm. One is, absolutely, this is a classic, I have a hammer, that problem must be a nail. I'm going Mm -hmm. to go forward with my CRM and just have at it. And then the other thought is, we're now in an environment where, you know, and I think you're, you're based on the West Coast as well, right? Yep, we are. And we're sitting next to Silicon Valley, and we're sitting in this area where we hear constantly... Just put it out there in the world. Create the MVP, minimum viable product. Mm -hmm. Create something in the world and just see how they respond. So where, you know, where do you come out on on that type of thinking um, in terms of uh, social impact? Should we consider it differently, you know, creating a, uh, you know, another app to get humans beverages faster versus helping uh, people find shelter or... Uh, deploy volunteers. Is there is there a difference here? How do you think about these methodologies? Yeah, I, I should say that I don't see the difference there. I do, mm. I do very much believe in getting MVPs out and things into the community's hand. And that's part of how do we organize our listening so that it can happen faster mm-hmm. and we can get the right things. We put We give people multiple chances to choose and vote throughout the whole process. And they're the ones doing the um, first low-fidelity prototypes, not us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, so I'm, I'm very much in favor of getting things in front of the community, but I think that's part of listening, frankly, if you're doing it well. And an MVP should be part of listening. It shouldn't just be proving your concept. It, can, it, it, it should be saying back to the community, did I understand you correctly when we made this MVP? Yeah. Is Tell this, me a little bit more. You're talking about, you know, you're using yeah. some terms like prototyping. Give me some for instances uh, of creating those prototypes. Sure. And, and how do you structure listening so that you just don't end up with a bunch of anecdotal garble? Yep. So I'm going to give you an example um, from a project that we're doing right now in Indianapolis uh, where we're helping. We're working with the community there to um, develop something that helps Indianapolis residents be able to access emergency food resources. Um, so what we went in with first is we just heard them describe their problem. Somebody from the mayor's office talked about the problem, why they were there, why they cared about solving it. You know, we just listened, right, on the phone, took a lot of notes. And then we did a much more active ver- version of listening that could also be called research, Um, We started looking and seeing what conversations were going on in Indianapolis, how people were, where we could find people expressing opinions about this online. What were they expressing? Why were they expressing it? Uh, We followed up with a couple more phone calls to people to find out what they thought and didn't think. We looked at other comparable communities, right? So the first part of listening was just us gathering information on on, on who to listen to. And it's a a really active process, right? The key for us is that we're going in without an idea at that spot. That that for us is a big, we we aren't looking for proof points that our solution will work. We're listening to listen. We, we actually call it extreme listening uh, amongst our team. And we go in, and, and so we're listening in this active way of doing research, reading articles, doing um, uh, phone interviews with subject matter experts. This doesn't take a lot of time. Um, in some cases, 
uh, I did it. I just did a shortened version of this for a project and I spent about three and a half hours doing it. A combination of research, uh, finding somebody, asking them for a little bit of time and talking to them on the phone for a half an hour. Um, so you can, we absolutely recommend that people time box this and make it be in a, uh, an amount of time that is reasonable for the project they're engaging with. Right. And then the second part for us is to bring the community stakeholders together in a day and a half generate and design meeting. And in that meeting, we go through a facilitation process where we work with the community members. It can be any place from, you know, 15 to 35 people. Um, uh, a variety of community members come together and we go through a facilitated process where we have them generate design questions. Um, these look like how might we help people who get food support be able to make tasty, nutritious recipes with the food that's available to them. That, that is an example of a design question. Um, how might me, I'm looking at some on my wall from this uh, work we did in Indianapolis. How might we lower barriers to nutritious eating habits? Um, and we have them do that in, in, the, in their group. They write them on these big pieces of flip chart paper. And then, and then that leads us into the, the next round of the event where we put those pieces of flip chart paper up on the wall and the participants vote on the ones they, they want to work on. So the lowest fidelity prototype possible, right? The lowest minimum viable project is just which design question moves you? Which one do you think, which one do you think is going to be an, an impactful for your community? We have them go through and do a little exercise there. But then also, which one are you motivated to work on? And so we have them vote with their feet. They get up and they walk to the design question they want to spend the next day working on. Um, once we do that, we take them through another process where they create a user, a super structured process, where they create a user storyboard. They describe that to, um, the, they describe their user and they describe their storyboard to the other participants. And then we give them a bunch of scissors and construction paper and glue and protractors and compasses and rulers, and we have them build out of construction paper and colored pens and big pieces of flip chart paper the page you would look at in an app store to decide whether or not you're going to download that particular product. We have them name it. We have them write a brief description. We have them make three or four representative screens. We have them write what data it may need to access or use. Um, and we, we have them do all this, and at the end of it, they pitch it to one another. So that's the second stage, right? We actually, and that, and that starts to look like a low-fidelity prototype. It's not going to work, right? Obviously, it's made out of construction paper. <laughs> but if you, were to, if you were to come into my office now and look at one of the ones that they made called Food Compass, you would immediately know that you were looking at a mobile app. And you would immediately get an idea of what it does. So now what do we do with that? We bring those back into our offices. We work with our designer to turn them into big posters that are faithful to the representations that the users made. Um, but they even out some of the differences. So the folks that worked on the Food Compass version, you know, use the rulers and a bunch of color. And one of them was clearly an artist because the drawings are terrific. And the other people that did one that was about recipes um, used tons of sticky notes that they overlapped on each other because they had a lot of I different ideas and that they were trying to place in there. So our designer helps helps even out sort of those things. So they have some, they don't, they don't look so different as they do coming out of the working groups. 
Um, we turn them into posters. Now we're going to take those posters and mail them to 40 locations in the city of Indianapolis, along with comic cards and stickers and boxes. Have people at those locations hang the posters on the wall so anybody walking by can just look at them. And, and there are three ideas. They can say which of the three they like best. They can put stickers on the posters themselves to say, I like or don't like features. Um, and they can write more detailed comments about what they like and don't like. So we take those things that the community made, we, we, we make a, a little bit hardier version of it, and we send it out and we get a lot of feedback. And this is where that expression of community will comes in, right? So you're talking about minimum viable products. We endeavor always to be putting things in front of the community and getting feedback, but we don't want to invest a ton until we get some of that initial feedback. What will happen next is we'll get a bunch of data. We'll organize that data into spreadsheets. Um, we'll look at it from a couple of different angles and go back and work with anybody that participated anywhere along the way that would like to work with us to say, okay, based on this data, here's what our recommendation would be about moving forward. Here's about how much we think this would cost. Um, what do you guys think? And what do you, you see the same stuff we do. We've put some organization around it. We maybe have added some intelligence that come from, comes from our skill set. The community members have already added a lot of intelligence that comes from their skill set, right, to get us there. Mm -hmm. But we add things like, it's going to be hard for us to get this data. This is going to cost a lot if we put these features in. This is going to take this kind of development time. We think it'll cost this, this much to support. It'll need this kind of a, you know, people answering help desk queries, you know, like, We'll add some of that kind of, it's all super rule of thumb, you know, at that point still. Um, but we'll add that and, and say, and, and say, so based on all of this stuff, what people responded to, what we think the cost is, the magnitude of the problem that you have here, we're going to recommend this path. Um, and, but we do it in a way that gives them a lot of opportunities to refine and change the path. And then we'll take, we'll all collectively take a big, deep breath. We'll look around at what that community said was important to them. You know, now they've got all this community knowledge about what they mean when they say act, better access of food resources. They've, they've this big compendium of what they mean when they say that is represented by this is the tool that would help me get at that, right? As well as the background of research. We take a breath, we sort of pat one another on the back, and then we um, develop we develop a plan to build a minimum viable technical product that is something that will work and prototype or pilot depending on which is appropriate um, in a specific community take the learnings that come from that and build the um, uh, you know version one of a tool um, and the, I'm using prototype and pilot here a little bit differently prototype might be a place where we're going to put the technology together as quickly as humanly possible it may not be the final technical stack but it's something that gives people a thing to work with so we can test out a couple of the things that we think will be hardest because mm -hmm. um, the hardest parts are probably um, well they're inevitably they are not technology those those can be thorny issues for sure but the hardest parts usually have to do with how it integrates into the work habits and processes of human beings um, and so we'll build something out as, as inexpensively as we can. And that may mean doing something um, in a version that wouldn't be able to scale or go much past these 50 or 100 users, just so that we can see how they work with it. And then based on that, build a more robust version. In other instances, 
we can see the final product more clearly and the technology stack is pretty obvious. So then we might start with even a more robust, um, faithful version of the technology product and, and pilot it, use it with a limited number of people so that we can get their feedback explicitly and implicitly and based on that feedback, build a, a version that's meant for wider use. Sure. So it seems like you move from a very qualitative standpoint, the extreme listening, the the versioning to to get a, a user generated prototype, uh, to actually putting something into people's hands, and and at which point it seems like you move more toward uh, a, a quantitative, actual data, you know, with regard to usability. Uh, when looking at the app usage, how you know how do you make that transition, and what sort of metrics are you looking for yeah. when you know when they're holding the actual you know smudge my finger on the button so it does stuff phase? Yeah, yeah, that's actually I'd never thought of that, but you're absolutely right. Is that we do go progressively from qualitative to more quantitative data, um, though we try not to use the qualitative aspects. Um, and I'll talk about why in just a second. But when we start moving through, one, we make sure that people can do the expected processes. And we measure that the same way you'd measure anything. Are they able to download it? Can they set up a user account? Once they set up a user account, do they know what to do? Um, and then do they follow through on those conversions? And that's going to that's gonna vary on different, different products, right? Um, some things that we've made are more complex and you have to attach yourself to a project. So we spend a lot of time, how a user initiates using the product is, is relatively sophisticated, and we might spend a lot of time um, right there, and we really are looking at conversions. I will say I feel like we don't have good, and I would love as a sector if we could end up with better benchmarks of what those conversions should look like. Um, you know, like the project I started describing, um, the safe shelter collaborative, the piece that allows donors to donate, right? Somebody has to download it. They have to create a user account. They have to associate themselves with an organization. They have to get a notification and they have to respond to that notification by making a donation, right? So there's a fairly sophisticated set of things that have to happen and you lose people at each one. Um, and what we'd like to be able to do is establish better targets. Like how many people have to download the app for us to end up with, 200 people that make actual cash donations, right? Mm -hmm. Assuming that we're going to lose a percentage of people at each stage. Um, so we do a lot of, of that kind of looking just conversion trail. And if we see something that just is alarming, like, wow, nobody ever makes a donation or nobody ever associates themselves with an organization. So they're never receiving notifications. Then, then obviously there's some problem in there we have to fix. So we look at those kinds of really transactional things um, we do user interviews, so we call people up and ask them for their experience and what they thought, so we still do collect anecdotal information. And then we do structured focus groups as well to collect data. Once once we're confident people are, oh, they're, they're and two things happen during that process. Once, one is we get more confidence that people, we have a process that's followable and people will engage with, right? So we mm -hmm. get more confidence in that. And sometimes it's because we simplify the process and go, oh, gosh, we thought we needed this thing. We don't, actually. Let's take it out altogether and let people go straight to this step. Um, so some of it happens because of what we learn, for sure. In other instances, we may see users using it like in a way that's like, wow, we never thought of it like that, but it could totally do that. 
And so we might change or add some features to accommodate a user group we didn't anticipate um, or a kind of use we didn't anticipate. And, um, you know, so we find out we find out both of those things, um, you know, both kinds of course corrections. So once we get some confidence in the stability, um, we uh, we then move on and make the more robust version. And we usually look at it being a, a 1.1 version. So that is, this is the real version that's out in the world that we can all depend on existing. We've probably made a little bit of technical tweaks to move it past just the baseline there, hence the 1.1, not 1.0, because it's had enough use for us to make some of those things, maybe things like optimization, uh, you know, speed, Mm -hmm. data optimization on the back end, some things like that. and then, and then we continue to do that kind of monitoring and evaluation as we go. Um, whoops. <laughs> I managed to move myself in my chair in a way that just knocked my headphones out of my ears. Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Okay. And so, um, so anyway, yeah, so that's, that's what we're looking at. I think, you know, again, sort of I'm thinking about the way you phrase the question of moving from qualitative to quantitative data. I think one of the mistakes we've probably made is going to quantitative data too faster. And we could do a much better job of continuing to interview and and gathering qualitative information, because when we put it together with the quantitative stuff, that's what gives us the stories that allow us to push our development and to not just be pushing a tool on somebody. So it, it helps us keep listening when we get that kind of explicit feedback as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm just a, I'm a huge geek. And so while you were saying that question about, I wonder how many people, you know, we would have to get to download the app. I, uh, I've marked it at about 10,000 to get 200 donations. Yeah. That's, that's honestly, that's what our assumption is. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we're wondering is where exactly all of the drop off happens. Like, do we start to see an improvement in conversion So somebody downloads, they create a user account, they associate themselves with an organization, they make a donation once they receive a notification. Yeah. So So, my back of the napkin, just quickly on that, there are some benchmarks, right? So one out of, you know, basically only one out of five apps really make it past that first month or that first download. So I initially just throw away, you know, that 80%. So then I'm hanging out with about 2000 folks. And I know that every time you throw a, you know, a screen with a sign up form, you're losing 90% of of people. And so, you know, very quickly go from 10 to 2000 to 200. And so you realize that that the the true cost of of putting up some, uh, some of those barriers. Absolutely. And then, and then though we wonder if the people that get through them are then more committed. So one of the Mm, things that we see, for example, is that they make the donations more frequently than we would have guessed. Mm-hmm. and are more regular. So once somebody donates, they are more likely to be a repeat multiple donor than, than it is for us to have somebody that donates once and never again. So maybe that brings us to the next question. You know, uh, this is not the field of dreams. Anybody, mm-hmm. I'd say, who has created an app, aside from a small handful of unicorns, knows that acquisition is brutal. Yep. Getting new people to download and reuse that app. And also, you know, if we're talking about something like uh, you know, a safe night or a safe shelter type mm-hmm. of app. It's like great tool. However, how do you maintain that, uh, that acquisition rate, that top of mind um, yep. resource so that you get users, especially if you're an episodic, meaning that like, you know, I don't need to check the weather. I need to check the weather every day, but I don't need to check 
some of these tools. How do you approach the acquisition? Does it built into your strategy? Is the qualitative work actually a back end into that secretly or not so secretly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I don't have a good answer to it at all. I feel like this is exactly the place that we struggle the most. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to acquire two kinds of users for the Safe Shelter Collaborative, which includes Safe Night. One is the domestic violence organizations that are making a request. Without them, you could have a million people downloading it. They'll never get a, a request to mm. pay for them, right? And so they have to not only sign up, but actually use it. So we actually have some members that have signed up and never sent out a request. Um, so we, we have to keep it top of mind. And that's a particular problem because we find the turnover is high. So sometimes we'll call and say, oh, gosh, we noticed you haven't done this. And they'll say, like, what tool are you talking about exactly? Yeah. Because it's a, you know, because it's a new person. And so I think maintaining, you know, we use a community engagement strategy where we regularly do things like educational webinars. We have orientations for new people. We sort of do organizations joining in. We sort of have a couple of theories that we're operating from based on our long experience at TechSoup. Things like if an organization doesn't make a request within two weeks, they never will. Mm -hmm. um, so we're looking at where do we start really getting them to take that first step so that we're, we are working at converting them. And when we're talking about the organizations, we'll do a lot of handholding because they are so without them, nothing else happens. So, you know, we have an account manager whose job it is to call and say, like, and they don't say it exactly the way I'm going to say it, but it's a uh, gosh, you know, we give you 14 days to do this. You're at day nine and you haven't. So we better get you on the phone to find out what's going on. You know, what, what's working or not working or why not? And what can we do to help you? So we do a lot of high touch getting those organizations going. We keep do a lot of community engagement. So they get invited to educational webinars. We try and bring them resources and expertise they might not have easy access to. Um, you know, we're constantly scanning the news so that we're making sure we're aware of what's topical, not so that we can know the answer, but so that we can help bring together the people that, that might be able to provide insight. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that side of it. On the donor side, the people walking around in the world downloading it, we, we obviously can't be quite that high touch on that side, right? Because you are talking about, like, you just threw out the number, you know, 10,000 to get 200 donations. It's not like we're going to call them and say, hey, we saw you download. One, we can't call them and say, hey, we saw you downloaded this and you haven't, you haven't yet signed up. Um, but we are trying to understand how we can do better engagement and community building with that donor base. But in general, our view has been if we provide enough value for people to remember why they joined and why they came in and we keep that collaborative sense going, um, you know, that's going to help this remain um, an active and viable tool in their, their tool set when they're trying to solve the problem. It will also improve, help us get the information that's necessary to improve our marketing and acquisition because it's not our goal to get acquisition for an organization that for whom it makes no sense. Yeah. So by finding out why people aren't using it, we can go, ah, we should tweak our language or tweak our process. So those organizations can self select out because we have reason to believe it's not going to work well for them. How do you think about the question of, do I go the route of web app versus mobile app? Yeah. Um, so in the case of the safe shelter collaborative, it's both. Mm -hmm. um, I think genuine, genuinely when we're looking at things that are like, 
Um, we want people to have easy and quick access to it. They may need some offline access. We want to be able to use some location-specific or notification-specific things that are on the phone itself. We're probably going to move more in the mobile app direction. Um, we see, and I think in other instances where it's like you, you may be doing more admin functions, you may not need some of those native things on your phone, you don't need offline access, then, then having something that is more of a web app that can be used on a mobile device makes more sense. Um, we find that inevitably people, people want apps and they engage with the idea of a mobile app and something you point to and download. And we have come to believe it's because it gives a weight and expression to their community will that's just different from what a website does. And that people still are not used to doing things like saving a website on the home screen of their phone and using it like an app. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, so it's, it's tough. They navigate to it very, very differently. And so their engagement with it is very, very different. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably not a big secret to many of the, the listeners uh, of our show that I'm, I'm much more in the favor of a web app because of the cost, because of the access and discoverability mm-hmm. and in the rare case. And we had, uh, you know, the, the founder of charity miles on, and one of his, um, recommendations is you're only going the route of, you know, mobile app. If the product simply won't work unless you make it a mobile app, which is like a kind of good litmus test, but I'm always curious about other people's thinking. Yeah. We find that the expression of the community will part is this is a place where I'd, I'd love to figure out how we can do more, um, evaluation, because there's an intangible education thing that also happens when people are able to share something um, that feels like a thing they made, which is what part of what an app gives them. And I'm interested in doing it because how can we apply it to stuff that may be less expensive yeah. or have different functionality like, a, like a, a website? Okay. We are getting close to our rapid fire section, but I have a quick non sequitur question that I just sure. am curious about. What do the words minimum viable data mean to you? Mm. We think about this a lot. The minimum viable data is the smallest amount of data that is necessary for you to collect in order to do whatever transaction you need to do. Are we talking about sample sizes here? I mean, are we going into stats? No, no. Or we're just saying like holistically? Holistically. So, So I'll give you an example. In the Safe Shelter Collaborative, we're looking at putting a specific person into a shelter and for them to provide all uh, all the services they need a whole bunch of data about that person they need their name their exact age they may need certain pieces of identification they need to know a lot about their history of um, abuse the kind of trauma that they suffered um, a, a tremendous amount in tremendous detail right so that they can provide assistance we actually don't we they need to know if their leg is broken or not when their next doctor's appointment is but we don't need all of that to be able to find shelter for them. In fact, we only need 10 pieces of data. Most of it generic, like what age range are people in, um, uh, to be able to find shelter for somebody. So we want to skinny it down to the smallest amount of data necessary to do the next step. And we want to do that for two reasons. One, so that we reduce barriers of getting them to that next step for everybody, right? We make it easier and faster. 10 questions are easier and faster to answer than 140. So we're going to get them into shelter faster. Um, Two, to reduce the risk that the data is compromised 
Hmm. Um, so that we're not holding on to data that we don't need to be holding on to. Um, some of it may give us insights or give us reporting, but we could run the risk uh, when it gets compromised. And I think sometimes that compromising is the, the stuff we'd see as, as obvious and right away, like somebody's name or their address, right? Like it's easy to see that. But um, we collected at one point some data about the kind of ID people had, just the type, not, not specific information. And it was for statistical reasons. Um, we, you know, and thinking about it, and with recent political events in the United States, we realized that what we were essentially making was a list of people that received services that were probably, probably did not have documentation that we would consider legal in this country. Mm-hmm. And that we should not be holding on to that data, that we could be making a population vulnerable for not a very good reason. Yeah. Um, so we also think about it for those reasons. When we work outside of the U.S., we may think about those things much harder because collecting data can help people identify populations that they may want to target for reasons like advertising that we're super familiar with, but for other more difficult reasons. Oh, I'm glad I asked that question. You think differently. <laughs> I, I was thinking about it um, in a totally different way, but you know, I think there's a lot of listeners right now if you go to your website, I think a classic one is like asking for like five different fields in addition to the email when really all you really need is that email potentially. Yeah, uh, exactly. And obviously every single thing you ask uh, presents the difficulties you just mentioned. So, yep, it's, it's subpoenable and probably boom. more people than you have access to. Value. All right, rapid fire time. Yep. Here we go. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? Yeah, it's a, this is a super geeky answer. It's a tool called New Relic that mm-hmm. monitors our apps and websites, and it lets us look into the code and see where we may be having issues and performance bottlenecks. They have a terrific user interface, and we can look graphically and easily see things like peaks and how long various functions are taking. And just to help them, they also have a great NPO program. What kind of tech dragons, big issues, challenges, do you need to slay in the coming yeah. year? One that we can't possibly, but we have to figure out how to work on it, and that is lack of connectivity for many, many people and the expense of data. What is getting you excited that is coming up in the next year? Uh, we've It's actually a project that we've been working on. We've been working on a project called the Public Good App House where we're bringing together people like us that work on these tools and think about them. And we're holding a festival in November, and I'm pretty jazzed about the idea of, of, of getting to talk to all those people in one place. Can you talk about a mistake you've made in your professional career that has shaped the way you do things? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've been talking a lot about Safe Shelter and Safe Night. When we started um, Safe Night, we did all this user engagement with the organizations and have them on advisory boards and shared all this information with them. And we completely forgot to do the same thing for donors, Hmm. the people that had to sign up and donate it. I don't know why we thought they'd just magically appear, but we did. So we didn't, we didn't, we didn't include them in the same way. And we should have. Do you believe not-for-profits can successfully go out of business? Um, I would like to believe that, but I don't. Um, I think that mostly, um, the problems, the issues that they're working on are things to which we will always have to pay attention. And while we may get to spots where there are fewer of them doing some specific things, we, we are not going to be able to, um, get rid of this sector altogether. 
And no matter what, we'll continue marching for dimes. Yeah, well, I think that, but I think also there'll be people that can't access resources through the mechanism that society set up to access them for whatever reason. And you need people that are providing them that aren't providing them for a business or government reason. What is something you think you or your organization should stop doing? Mm, that's a that's a, a, a great question. I think in general, we should probably have far fewer internal meetings where we present to one another. If and you, we should include outside people in those sooner. If you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry of the nonprofit sector, what would it do? Yeah, it would be something that gives us a way to think about impact collectively. Um, so that we, it's, that we don't have to share what can sometimes feel like performance or proprietary data to share our impact, but we had a way of adding our numbers up to say, as a sector, this is, this is how we're progressing towards these big goals that had nothing to do with the number of donations or volunteers. All righty. Final one. How do people find you? How do people help you? Sure. So best way to find us is via our website, caravanstudios.org. Um, and I think that, you know, the biggest way that people can help us give us feedback on the tools that we've made um, and sign up for our email newsletters because we put out regular calls for engaging in the kinds of events that I described earlier where we bring community members to generate and design solutions. And also if you are in D.C., I believe, in November of 2017, things are yeah. happening. Yeah, yep. Uh, the, what I mentioned that I'm looking forward to, we're going to be doing um, a festival called the Public Good App House Festival, where we're going to be bringing together people thinking about participatory development, public good technologies, and the impact of those technologies for three days of conversation um, on how, you know, where we each get a chance to share what's worked well and what hasn't for us. And so it would be great to have folks participating in that. And again, you can, you can find it via our website. Okay. And just a bonus one, because I'm a huge geek. Uh, you're stranded on a desert island, and you can only bring one metric with you. What are you bringing? <laughs> <laughs> How much water is on that island? <laughs> <laughs> the amount of water. Well, there you have it, Marnie. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. A lot of value shared, uh, and best of luck. All right. Thanks a lot, George. I appreciate the chance to chat. There's so many great nuggets in this conversation. Uh, you know, the idea of minimum viable data. I mean, gosh, like think about those web forms that you keep adding to that kill your conversion rates, the number of people that actually fill them out. And think about also the, the idea of extreme listening. How would you kind of go back and say, no, no, no. What does it look like if we you know, dial up our listening to 11 uh, on the scale? Marnie is a great example of how you can integrate that into the, the fabric of your approach, into uh, literally the DNA of, of the organization. I'd encourage you to, to check out caravanstudios.org and also their upcoming conference in, um, in November. Resources, as always, this episode 7070, we did it, 70, uh, at wholewhale.com slash podcast, and you can find this episode and its resources to, to follow up uh, with, with Marnie and the incredible work that Caravan Studios is doing. Thanks for joining us. 
This has been Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. Resources, as always, may be found at wholewhale.com podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today's music, intro, outro, interludes, coming from the one and only gregthomasmusic.org. Greg also happens to be a fantastic member of the Whole Whale team, so you know where to reach him. 